Ben, and uh, I'm with Rachel here. Yeah, they, they nourish them too much these days. Don't they? They get too um, uh, Gillian, um, you will know. I was I was saying to my house group barbarians, um, the the barbaroi were called that because. Uh, the people in the far northern wastes of the Roman Empire spoke with heavy R's. Um, and uh, so the apostle was saying he was indebted to those, those um, marginal and poor people up there in Britannia. And we are enormously indebted to the fact that people followed his obligation and brought the gospel here. So um, there is good precedent for going to the barbarians. <coughs> I think there is no deeper instinct in human beings than the instinct that things should not be this way. It's the subtext of uh, every novel and film. Things are not right or they become not right and then the story unfolds to try and put those things right. It's the heart of all politics. Things are not what they should be. And they argue about how to put it right. And it's the personal conviction of every heart, if we're honest. My heart, one way or another, I know, doesn't function in the way that I... I know that it should. I long for it to. My heart is damaged, sometimes because of what they did to me, read parents, friends, authorities, strangers, whatever. But I think as well we know that in part my heart doesn't function because of reactions that I've had, ways that I have responded to circumstances, things that go on in me that I just wish didn't. And perhaps related to that, the deepest question that any human being can ask is, how can this be put right? Yeah, every, every novel or film is, is giving its own little answer to how this can be put right. You know, it, will it be solved if the ring of power is thrown into the fires of Mount Doom? You know, we're, we're, is it a truth? universally acknowledge that a single man in possession of a good fortune, um, all that he needs is a wife. There's always a solution there in every, in every tale, every conviction in politics is about this is the way to put things right, whether it's redistribution of wealth or a liberal democracy and minimal government and, and a whatever. What's wrong? Something's wrong. And I need to think, how can it be put right? And uh, nowhere is that more personal than in my own heart. How can I be put right? I found this quote from Confucius um, uh, this week, who seems to have... Um, absolutely had the instinct that I think 
people in culture after culture and situation after situation are drawn to. To put the world in order, we must first put the nation in order. To put the nation in order, we must per first put the family in order. To put the family in order, we must first cultivate our personal life. We must set our hearts right, he said. All religions are dealing at a very fundamental level. All belief systems, whether they're religions explicitly or not, are answering those questions. What is it that is wrong? Things are not right. What is it that is wrong? And how can it be put right? And uh, the natural temptation in whatever society we find ourselves is to just go with the conventional range of answers. Let's just, let's just pick some, some, something that, that will sort of satisfy me. Perhaps it's that people haven't got enough money. Perhaps just a bit more money, whether it's redistributed or setting the economy free or whatever it is, will, will solve any problem. Let's focus on that. Perhaps, it, perhaps it's psychological answers for my heart from Freud or Jung or Rogers or Maslow or Brené Brown or whoever your favourite um, uh, guru is. Um, perhaps I'm going to choose a kind of religious answer, spiritual reflection, comforting rituals, uplifting worship, whatever it is. Genuine biblical Christianity says to all of those things, those are far too superficial far too trite, far too naive, far too weak. Genuine biblical Christianity actually says something much, much deeper. And that means, actually, that genuine biblical Christianity in every age, in every culture, in every situation, finds itself at odds with the world around it that has gone for one or other trite answer. Because it's too subversive, it's too radical, it's too countercultural. That's what the, the recipients of this letter to the Hebrews were, were facing. What had happened about 30 years before is this new movement called Christianity had arisen in the Roman Empire. And at first it was hardly noticed, but slowly it was, it was becoming more and more noticeable. And slowly, the Roman authorities, who had all the standard range of answers to that, what is wrong with the world and how can we put it right, pair of questions, the Roman authorities were noticing this group stand aside from all those things. This, this group will not embrace those things. This group, they noticed, won't worship the emperor who's supposed to be a god and the great saviour of the world. This group, they noticed, <coughs> won't pay due, to res due respect to all our, all our uh, little religious shrines and so on that we have around the world to keep people spiritually satisfied. This group, we notice, has radically different sexual ethics and actually is critical of the way that we treat women and boys especially. This group 
is a threat to the body politic. And so, slowly, there was uh, a rising sense of hostility from the Roman Empire. And Hebrews is written to a group who are feeling that. We've said several times it, that, that it seems to have been written shortly before, in fact, Emperor Nero decided to murder in the most gruesome way some Christians to blaming them for the, for the great fire of Rome. That hasn't happened yet, but it's coming. We've called the series Facing the Coming Storm. Because whenever God's people really start living for him, whenever God's people really embrace what the Bible says is the real problem with the world and the real solution, slowly the world starts noticing it and realising that it cannot do anything else but critique the world's superficial answers. And so our author is writing to people who attempted to slip back into the background. Christianity had arisen out of Judaism. Judaism was rec recognised and tolerated within the Roman Empire, despised, frankly, a bit, but it was, um, uh, but it was a sort of relatively safe place to be. And so why not just go and be like, you know, that little religious group yeah. and not stand out and be different as genuine Jesus followers? And he says, no, you can't do that. You simply can't do that. And the whole of Hebrews is saying, we can't do that. Jesus is the, 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 the creator and sustainer of the whole universe, Hebrews 1. The exact representation of God's being. This is something that you must stand for and be different. Jesus is the one who became human, uh, Hebrews chapter 2. Suffered alongside us, died, but then rose from the dead to give the true hope that humans long for. And again and again, actually, through Hebrews, um, he circles back to this title of Jesus as the great high priest. Because the, the concept um, of the high priest in the Bible is that here is someone who uniquely stands as a mediator between God and the people. Someone who, who manages the reconciliation of, <coughs> of God's people with him. And says the writer to the Hebrews, Jesus is that par excellence. Jesus is God made man come to reconcile us to him. Jesus is, is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, if you were here last week. And that Tom was explaining, completely unique. Not part of the, the uh, Levitical system of the Old Testament, just unique. Without birth or death recorded. And Hebrews uh, 8 verse 1, did you see? Recircles back to that. Now the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. We're going to return to that theme because Hebrews will return to that theme. But we're, gonna, we're going to have to jump across the first six verses, wonderful as they are, of Hebrews 8. To focus on a new thing that is being added to the story. As a high priest, we are told from verse 7 onwards, 
he initiates a new, radically different covenant. Verse 6. In fact, the ministry of Jesus that Jesus has received is as superior to theirs, that's the ministry of Old Testament priests, as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. So circling back to those two questions, what's wrong with the world? How can it be sorted? What he's, what he's saying is this. Three quarters of the Bible, the whole of the Old Testament, is devoted to exploring what is wrong with the world, and then, in most importantly, telling us that superficial answers don't work. The whole arc of the story of the Old Testament is, is that the problem is set up and expanded and amplified and given and shown to Israel and Israel fails. As um, uh, he says in the next verse, God found fault with them. It didn't work. But the whole of that three quarters of the Bible is pointing actually to the fact that finally God is going to put the last piece in the jigsaw which will transform the whole picture. A solution that does work. Something new has to happen, cries voice after voice after voice in the Old Testament. If there was nothing wrong, verse 7, with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the, with the people of Judah. It's a quotation from the Old Testament prophet uh, uh, Jeremiah. It's actually the longest quotation, the, the quotation that we'll look at in full in the New Testament. He's promising a new covenant, a new agreement between God and, <coughs> and people. The whole story of the Old Testament is the story of God's covenant relationship Firstly not working, and then God establishing a new one. The great message of the Old Testament is this is not working. God gives his laws to his people, wonderful laws, but they disobey them. God gives them a land uh, to live in and they mess it up. God gives them rulers to rule over them and they are rubbish. God gives them a system of sacrifices for forgiveness of sins. But they just have to keep doing them again and again because they keep going wrong again and again. And finally God leaves Israel to their own devices and the whole thing implodes and they go into exile. You may ask, why three quarters of the Bible to, uh, to, to show that? It may well be because we are slow to learn. It needs to be worked out in excruciating and painful detail over 2,000 years before finally the penny drops. This is not working. 
And you know that is God's message to our world now, today. To those who trust in politics. What do you think of the politics of today? That's his message to 1960s idealists who believed that the, the sexual revolution would help everyone to make love and not war. Uh, by the way, they gave up on that pretty quickly, settled down, married, became merchant bankers, and now living a very happy, um, wealthy retirement whilst they watched subsequent generations deal with the carnage that they unleashed. That's his message to, to those many who, who rise to greatness themselves. And then their, their voices are just like a, like a drumbeat. Boris Becker, when you get to the top, there is nothing there, he said. Well, did you see the rueful words of Matthew Perry this week who played Chandler Bing in Friends? And his life was a chaotic mix of drugs and alcohol and broken relationships. And he revealed how as a teenager he said, God, I don't care what you do with me, just make me famous. He said that was a dumb prayer. That's his message to all of us who trust in our solutions in this world, no matter how good they seem. A solution, I'll, I'll, I'll get great exam results, I'll get a great job, I'll get great money, I'll, I'll, I'll find a trophy partner, I'll, I'll, I'll do all of these things and then, it, then it'll be fine. It is an illusion because it is a superficial answer to the question, what is wrong with this world? And a superficial answer to the question, how can it be put right? Sooner or later, like Israel, everyone wakes up and says, this is not working. But God promised a new covenant Verse 9, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. Notice, this was a pretty close and strong relationship that God had established with his people. He took them by the hand. If you read the story, his compassion was poured out on the people. He miraculously delivered them from slavery in Egypt. This is not a half-hearted uh, um, uh, approach of God to his people to care for them and look, look after them. But it is not enough. They did not remain faithful to my covenant. They'd been taken by the hand from the most abject slavery into a land flowing with milk and, mil milk and honey. And they said, thanks very, God, uh, very much, God, but no thanks. I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. You go back to heaven. We want nothing to do with you. Change has to happen on the inside. That's, that's what the Bible is drawing us to, as we instinctively feel so often. Change has to happen on the inside. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel. 
After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. Here's the problem. We can learn the rules, but we still will not follow them. We can experience the care of God, but we still will not obey him. We can acknowledge who he is, but we still walk away from him. G.K. Chesterton uh, famously wrote into the Times newspaper um, when they were exploring what was wrong with the world. Sir, what is wrong with the world? I am G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> but God is not going to give up. God is going to provide a solution of the most profound nature. He will put his law in our minds. Uh, that's not learning, learning facts. That's deep engagement. In fact, in the original in, in uh, Jeremiah. In, I'll put my law in their guts. I'll, I'll, I'll make it so that, so that the very core of their beings. The very core of who they are. They just feel this is the way I should go. This is the way I want to go. There are only two kinds of relationship with God, says the Bible. On the one hand, there are those who don't want to follow him and actually hate him. They may confidently tell the world that. They may declare that he doesn't exist secretly as, um, as Stephen Fry confesses, hoping he doesn't exist, because if he did, Stephen Fry is convinced he would hate him. They may be very polite about him, say he's just not for me, not to my taste, I prefer money, but they hate him. And most disconcerting of all, they may be people who find themselves in churches. They may be people who are working on a deal with God. What what can I do? What 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 are the what are the, the the ducks and dives that I can manage to make sure I get to heaven? Because I believe this stuff. But if I'm honest, I hate. And on the other hand, there are those who love God. Your life may be a mess, but you know you love him at root. You may wander away and do all kinds of unsavory things and stuff that make you feel ashamed of yourself. But you know you love him at root. You may doubt him at times, rail against him at times, be confused about him at times, but in the end you know you love him. Something you just can't deny. Because there are only two kinds of people. And the big story of Israel in the Old Testament 
is if that fundamental change hasn't happened. No matter how good the laws you embrace, no matter how wonderful the land that you're placed in, no matter how good the leaders are, and all of those other things, you'll walk away from him. But if God catches hold of your heart, if God turns you around, no matter how messy your life is, no matter how many struggles there are, no matter how much confusion there is and, uh, and, and difficult things to deal with, he's not going to let you go. Because he's captured your heart. He's put his law in your guts. He's taken out your heart and he's written his law on it and shoved it back in there. So it beats now to his tune. I will put my laws in your hearts. I will write it in your minds. I will write them on your hearts, he says. He does it. We don't. He takes the initiative. He provides the only solution that is possible. Because every other solution heads towards the conclusion this is not working. God's deepest diagnosis for what's wrong with the world is that somehow my heart's got distorted. Somehow my heart's got damaged. Somehow my heart, as Martin Luther described it, has got turned in on itself. Somehow my heart turns away from God and I can't do anything about it except that God his finger on us and draws us to himself and turns our heart around and makes a new covenant with us where he places the very core of our being a desire to follow him. Three things our author explains to us about that new relationship with God, uh, with God that, that solution which trumps all others. First of all, it is about a new relationship. Verse 10, I will be their God and they will be my people. That phrase goes all the way back to Abraham. It was one of the great promises to Abraham about his future people. I will be their God and they will be my people. And it echoes throughout the Bible. In fact, it goes right to the very end in, uh, in Revelation 21. But it actually goes back even beyond Abraham, in essence, to the very creation of humanity itself. Because there he walked in the cool of the garden with Adam and Eve. He was God, their God. They were his people. And it was precisely that alienation, that throwing out of the Garden of Eden, that separation that they began to experience between them and God, that God was determined to change. And now, for God's people now, he does that by changing our hearts. I will be your God you will be my people. 
I will be draw you to myself so that you, I am the only God you worship because you've seen that I am of supreme value. I will come and walk alongside you like I did with Adam and Eve. You'll be my people and I will be with you. There will be a complete reconciliation on both sides because he has changed our human hearts. A new relationship with God. New knowledge of God. Verse 11. No longer will they teach their neighbours or say to another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. This isn't about no longer needing teachers of any kind. The New Testament is quite clear that God's church needs teachers of a kind, but not teachers of a certain kind. You'll see the difference perhaps if you go into a very traditional Roman Catholic church. It is very obvious in that Roman Catholic church that uh, there is a priest at the front who apparently knows God and does all the stuff, and then there's the people who are just the sort of the distant followers. And that is contrary to what the New Testament is speaking about. Everybody has the opportunity to know God in exactly the same way and with exactly the same intimacy. Everybody has access to the Bible by which we can read God's word because of that. Everybody can pray to God and pray to God in their own words, not in words that are given them some, by someone else because God now has changed their hearts so that they can speak to him in an authentic way. They know God. Everyone makes a contribution amongst the community of God. There aren't some people who particularly know God and others who are just looking on. Everybody knows them. From the least to the greatest, from the least educated to the most educated, from the poorest to the richest, from the youngest to the oldest, from the most damaged to the, most, uh, to, to the least damaged. Everybody can know him exactly equally. Because we all know the only hope for us is if God turns our hearts and brings us to him and helps us to know him. And it doesn't matter that you've got five degrees. You have no greater access to God than someone who has a little child's understanding. It doesn't matter that your life's in order and their life is not. Or the other way around, that your life's not in order and, the, and their life looks so much better. You and the other person have exactly the same opportunity to know and love and delight in God. Because the key thing is, your heart was turned. So that now you come to love him. And all of that is built on a new foundation. Verse 12, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. There is a consistent pattern in the Bible that actually God does two things for us in this new covenant. I've been emphasizing one of them. But there is another one which you will have often heard from 
here and elsewhere if you've been in churches. He provides complete and utter forgiveness for you and for me as we put our trust in Jesus. That is what Jesus' death on the cross was for. And that complete and utter forgiveness means that there is no barrier between you and God. That is the foundation on which now he does the second thing of turning our hearts to him so that we love him. So it is not by accident. He says, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. In other words, I will do this new thing. I will establish this new relationship with my people because I have forgiven all of their sins so nothing needs stand between us. That, says the writer to the Hebrews, is worth dying for. That, he says, means you don't step back into anonymity, try and hide under the under the sort of in the safety blanket of 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 uh, in their case just rejoining the Jews and having a quiet life. This is the only solution for the world. This is the only solution for any human being in the whole world. This is the deepest and ultimate diagnosis of what is wrong with the world and the solution. The God of the whole universe steps in and he turns people so that they come to love him. He, he places a desire to follow him in their hearts. And the Christians from the beginning said that is worth dying for. That, that, that is worth going to Madagascar just because that's what he said. That is worth speaking to that friend, even though it might mean that you're ostracized. That is worth us as a church being prepared to face hostility. Because what Jesus offers us is the only hope this world has. Notice as well, he is making a very strong distinction. The most, the strongest uh, statement probably in the New Testament of this distinction between the old way and the new. Verse 13, for instance, by calling this covenant new, he's made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. One of the reasons why we, we baptise believers here is because we believe that actually the New Testament promise is of a radically new nature, which you cannot inherit from your family. There has to be evidence that God has turned me around. God has placed in my heart that desire to follow him. 
And so baptism follows an incredible profession of faith. You'll know, I've said it before, we, we respect those who read the Bible and come to, come to different uh, conclusions. But this and other texts suggests to many like me that the newness of the new covenant desires a new sign, baptism, which is given to those who are marked as those who have turned and made a, a change, a change has happened in their own life, not just to infants. And this, of course, is what needs to happen to you. If in your heart you know, I don't yet love him. One of the painful conclusions of three quarters of the Bible is that we can't do it ourselves. But God can. And those who seek him, he promises he'll turn our hearts around. Perhaps you're just not sure. Perhaps you never thought of it in that way. Let me encourage you. To read, to pray, and to seek the Lord. He is there, he is ready to be sought. And he deals with our deepest needs. And turns our hearts to him. Father, we, uh, we pray that you would speak to each one of us. Um, for those of us, hopefully the, the majority of us, who, for whom you have done that work, Lord, help us to see how glorious and wonderful it is. Help us to be confident in you. Help us to live confidently for you as the one who turns around human hearts. And for any of us who are unsure, Lord, or for whom we one way or another recognise we don't yet love you. Lord, we, we throw ourselves on you and we sense 
truth of what you say. We ask, Lord, change our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.